listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Green State. I'm Dylan Darling. And I'm Lauren Wirtis, and we're Oregon Department of Environmental Quality Communications staff talking about how DEQ is protecting your air, land, and water. Hope everyone had a good new year, and we're already a whole month into 2023, and there's a lot new in this new year. Oregon has a new governor, Tina Kotek, and DEQ will be getting a new director soon. Very exciting times. Absolutely. And this podcast will also be coming out during the early part of the legislative session. For 2023, this includes swearing in newly elected officials, electing legislative leaders, adopting rules, organizing and appointing committees, and introducing bills. As in, I'm just a bill, but the state version. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Those bills go through a long, complicated process that we're not going to go into here. And some of them come out as new laws. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about laws as being too vague, especially when they get kicked down to voters and organ to vote on. Though this is pretty rare. The state legislature passes most laws. But what you don't learn in history class is the part called rulemaking. Yes, the law is supposed to set a framework and communicate a goal or intent. So you'll often see language in proposed laws about rulemaking. For example, in 2022, a bill passed and became law about seismic stability for fuel facilities in Oregon. One line in the bill says, and now I'm quoting, the Environmental Quality Commission, and a quick aside, that's DEQ's governing body, in consultation with the State Department of Geology and Mining Industries may adopt by rule requirements for seismic vulnerability assessments, end quote. The bill then goes on to offer some specifics about the rules and what they should contain, but it's generally pretty vague. So the law gives DEQ the authority to make rules about a particular topic. And authority is an important concept. For example, I love dogs, and let's say I think dogs are more environmentally friendly than cats, and I want DEQ to create a new rule saying no one in Oregon can have cats anymore. Well, we can't actually do that because A, there'd be enormous pushback, and B, DEQ does not have the authority to tell people what pets they can and cannot have. There's no law telling DEQ to regulate that. Wow, Lauren, you're coming for the cat levels with that. But this is a really important distinction because the communities you and I talk to, Lauren, they have a lot of questions about the facilities around them. And sometimes they want us to regulate them in a certain way. But we must have the authority first. Authority to regulate comes through laws that typically give us the authority or ability to make rules. Rulemaking at DEQ is happening pretty much constantly, so we decided to talk to a couple of folks at DEQ who can help us better understand rulemaking. The first person is Emil Knighty, DEQ's Rules Coordinator. My name is Emil Knighty. It's Emily without a Y. 
Um, I've worked for DEQ for over 14 years doing this particular position, which is agency rules coordinator for, whoa, two-ish. Before that, I did uh, air quality rules coordination for five years. So doing rulemaking related stuff for a total of seven. Sounds, that sounds right to me. And I had served in public in a variety of capacities in my personal life. So I served on city council in uh, the city of Estacada. I served on the planning commission. I chaired the budget committee. I was on the infrastructure committee. I served on the community foundation. So I did a lot of volunteering earlier on in my life, <laughs> um, but I gained experience with that and kind of a passion for community service and appreciation for the process of how things are done in uh, a public body. Well, that's really cool that you have that public experience. Um, and that seems like it would really inform what you do now. So, um, which is rulemaking. So I'm hoping you, that probably means that as you came into this job, you were very familiar with why rules end up being pretty important um, to all of us here in Oregon. But maybe you could explain um, why are rules and rulemaking important here at DEQ? Yeah, yeah, rules, um, they don't seem exciting at first, right? But they're at the heart of everything we do. So if we want somebody to do something or not do something, there has to be a rule that we can point back to that gives us that authority. <clears throat> so Oregon has its own state constitution. It uh, kind of tells the legislative body, so the legislator and the governors, what authority they have. And so they pass laws within that authority. And then those laws are pretty broad usually. And so those, uh, those laws give DQ the authority to do something. And then we have to develop rules to actually fill in the DQ the gaps that the legislators didn't write or fill in. Uh, if they could, you know, if they could do that, if they could write the rules, there'd be no need for state agencies, really. They could just make their own rules and do everything, but they can't. That's not realistic. So they'll tell DEQ, hey, go issue electric vehicle rebates, figure out how to do it in the best way possible. So it's, it's yeah, it's at the heart of everything to do. If there were no rules, there'd be no DEQ because, you know, what, what would we enforce? What would we do? Uh, thank you so much for that. So once the legislature makes a law that requires DEQ to make rules, what does that mean for DEQ? Uh, and again, kind of taking us through those steps. Yeah, so the legislative process is an open process. It's a long, longish slash shortish process. You know, they're only in session for a few months. We have legislative um, employees that track bills and, you know, they'll provide input on bills. So it's usually not a surprise that a law is coming down the line that we're going to have to do something about. So we're usually going to have a little bit of lead time to kind of think through the process, even though a law hasn't been adopted of what we might have to do. But of course, we can't officially start working on something until there's a law that gives us the authority to do so. But once a law is passed, I guess the first, really the first thing we do, oh, there's a couple things. But the biggest thing is, is, is there a timeline attached to this? Is there some sort of implementation date? That is the, at least for my job, that is the biggest question because are, can we meet the deadlines they've imposed? Can we go through a whole rulemaking process and meet that deadline? So that's the first step is to see if there's any timelines, deadlines. You know, then we need to assess, you know, what resources might be needed, um, uh, what divisions are affected, air, land, water. And then, you know, we, we're trying to get better about performing outreach earlier on, get them involved in the process, identify who needs to be at the table, helping inform our rulemaking process, serve on an advisory committee, you know, 
if they adopt a law that we don't have experience with, you know, they want us to stand up a program that maybe we don't have experience with, well, they're going to have to do research. We're going to have to see if there's uh, existing programs elsewhere. You know, example of that was the Cleaner Air Oregon thing uh, that was adopted uh, in 2016. We started on that. We adopted the program permanent rules in 2018. But that was a long process where we looked at what other states have done. Other, uh, We gathered information from what some other countries have done. That was a huge involved process. So once, yeah, once a law gets adopted, it's a, it can be a big process or it can be a simple process. You know, if it's something that just says, hey, you can increase fees for this program, it's a little easier. We have experience with our program. We already have these established fees. It, 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 it's, yeah, it kicks off a whole internal process depending on what, what the law is telling us to do. Yeah, and so how many rulemakings? I think I heard from someone that like something like seventeen or eighteen hundred bills have dropped now that were um, as we're speaking we're in session. So of course not all those will become laws, um, and not all of those will be for DEQ. But um, about how many rulemakings does DEQ do in a year? So this can vary. Um... I look back for the last couple of years, so we'll go anywhere from 10 to 20 rulemakings in a year. So let's say the average is 15. Depending on what we have to do when, some, there'll be some uh, temporary rulemakings we might adopt in there. So that will bump the number up. I didn't count temporaries, but for permanent rulemakings, average is 15. And then um, there's some, there's some like uh, technical type cleanup rulemakings I can do to correct typos and stuff. You know, those can... I can do like 10 of those a year or something. It just depends on if someone finds a misspelling or a bad reference. But about 15 a year, because um, it is an involved process. It, the rulemaking process itself is based on, a, on rules, um, based on the Secretary of State's rules, which is based on laws the legislators passed. So we go through a rulemaking process that is based on law, based on rules, and they adopt new requirements. Um, yeah, last year they adopted some new requirements that we have to go through. And that can add uh, some more time to the process. Well, wow. Thank you so much for uh, all the context. And so help us understand what does it look like to do rulemaking and what are some of these main steps or milestones? Yeah. So um, the first step when we start a rulemaking is some sort of need is identified. So that could be it, that can come from a law being adopted. But uh, a lot of rulemakings come because we've identified some sort of issue that exists that we already have the authority to deal with under existing law. So that's the first step. The program will identify a need that can be met only through rulemaking. So that means the rules don't currently cover what we want to do. So we need to do rulemaking. There may be new legislation like, like we've talked about. Um, EPA adopts rules that we might have to incorporate into our own. So the feds may adopt something that necessitate us doing a rulemaking. And then something that's become more common lately is the EQC may receive a citizen petition and then the EQC, if they accept that petition, would direct DEQ to initiate a rulemaking to do whatever that petition is asking the agency to do. Uh, that's, yeah, that's early on. So some sort of need is identified. Um, so once that need is identified, the program that uh, wants to do the rulemaking or is required to do the rulemaking is going to identify the appropriate staff. They're going to fill out a rulemaking planning form where they schedule things out. Uh, they identify what, what need we're trying to meet with this rulemaking what would happen if we didn't do this rulemaking. So they fill out a planning form that goes to our leadership to approve. Um, each rulemaking will take 10 months to a year, once again, depending on the complexity and the level of stakeholder input required. 
Um, so once a rulemaking is approved to move forward, um, you know, part of that planning form, we're going to tell the leadership team if we think we need to appoint an advisory committee. A majority of the time, we're going to appoint an advisory committee to help inform our rules that we're developing. We're not required to appoint a committee, um, but it's best practice. It helps, it helps us create a better product. Um, whoever serves on our committees are appointed by the director. And then we'll go through the advisory committee process, depending on if we're starting from scratch or if we already know what kind of rules we're writing. Uh, that really varies to how many committee meetings we're going to need. You know, if we already know this is like a, a simple fee rulemaking, we want you to evaluate what these impacts. Do we have this right? Is there a better way we could do this? Might need just one meeting or two meetings versus if we're standing up a whole new program, um, we're going to need a lot of input. You're going to have a, probably a month in between each meeting. So that's you can just do the math. That's going to take a lot more time to do, you know, one to two months versus, you know, six, seven, eight months just for the advisory committee process. So after we go through the advisory committee process, uh, we'll come up with a product that we're pretty confident is what we think the final proposal should be, what the rule should be. And then we'll put it out on public notice and ask for members of the public to submit comment on the rules to see if, um, if there's something that should change, if they disagree with any of our findings and our, our, our notice documents. So we'll go through that process, so accept public comment, and then we're required to respond to each comment. So if someone submits a comment on rulemaking, know that DQ reads each comment. We don't ignore them. And we're required by our commission to respond to each one. So we're going to read through them and provide some sort of written response. And we do change rules based on, on response to comments. So we'll do that. Uh, go through the comment period, close it, respond to comments. And then the last step is that uh, we will present our rules to the Oregon Environmental Quality Commission for consideration and adoption. Only the Environmental Quality Commission has statutory authority to adopt rules. If, uh, if the commission adopts rules, then we'll file them with Secretary of State. And then they're official. Then they're, uh, then they're enforceable as soon as we file them. And they have the power of law at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that explanation because it's really helpful to see that whole process. And then you essentially kind of queued up my next question, which is, you know, it seems like there are some things that are probably constant amongst all rulemakings, the EQC always has to adopt them. They're probably going to go out on public notice. Um, but are there any major parts of that that um, change or do they tend to look the same? For example, you mentioned the uh, rulemaking advisory committee. Kind of when does that come into play? Yeah, what, what tends to make these rulemakings look similar or different from each other? Yeah, yeah. So we have the same process we try to follow for each rulemaking and the same required steps, but then there is great variation within, in between those steps. Um, so I guess the biggest difference like you asked about is uh, the advisory committees. We're not required to appoint an advisory committee, but we do for the vast majority of our rulemakings. The only time we don't appoint an advisory committee is only for the most simple and basic of rulemakings that we feel have little impact fiscally and otherwise and very little um, controversy surrounding them. So an example of this is we go through um, like a, we'll adopt federal regulations by reference. Um, EPA already adopt this rule. It already is a requirement. So there should be very little uh, controversy in us adopting a rule that people are already subject to. But uh, I'd say 95% of the rulemakings are going to have an advisory committee. We're trying to do, we're trying to be more proactive, like I mentioned before, about reaching out to potentially affected parties, um, 
you know, environmental justice is a big thing for, for the agency and trying to reach out to the, you know, historically underrepresented communities and figure out ways to make things more accessible. And so in getting ready for this, we, we looked around DQ's um, webpage and took a look at the portion about rulemaking and I've seen DQ's webpage for rulemaking, which we'll link to in the show notes. And on it, I saw that the rulemaking process includes drafting a fiscal impact statement and an equity impact statement. What are those and how does DEQ use them? Yeah, so uh, once, yeah, once again, this is a requirement that is in statute in Oregon law. This came about because they want state agencies and those that are requiring members of the public to do something to slow down and think about what the consequences of what they're proposing are. And so that is the intent of the fiscal impact statement and the racial equity statement. Both of these are requirements that exist in law. The racial equity statement is a new requirement as of last year. And the intent is to slow, have agencies slow down and force them to think about what the impacts, what the costs will be. Um, to the members of the public or to the entities that the rules are going to affect and write that down. And part of that is if we see, oh my gosh, this impact is going to be awful. Is there a way we can mitigate those costs? So that is the purpose and the intent of that legislation. So for the fiscal impacts, that's kind of straight, that's kind of in the name. They're more than fiscal. So there can be negative costs or they can be positive costs. And so the fiscal impact statement, we try to go through. So um, you know, raising a fee, that's pretty obvious as, uh, you know, that's going to have a, a fiscal impact or increased cost to whoever's paying this fee. On the other side, there could be positive costs because, you know, we're protecting public health. So that's going to reduce, you know, health related cost. And then part of the law, part of legislation or statute says that if we see, if we identify a significant adverse impact to small business. So there's a big concern around negatively impacting small businesses because it can be hard for small businesses, right? Is that um, we need to consider ways of changing our rules or what we're proposing to do to reduce the impacts to small business while achieving the rules substantive goals. So there's, there's the key, right? So same with the racial equity uh, impact statement. We want to make sure that our rulemakings, or the rules we're proposing don't have an adverse impact, a negative impact. And if they have a positive, well, great, we can write that down. But the intent, but I believe the intent is that we uh, don't adopt rules that would adversely impact um, racial equity within the state. Um, and so that's that's the purpose of those, to help inform ourselves, help us to think about things if we need to make changes, and then also inform the public um, in the advisory committee. So both of these statements, when we have an advisory committee convened, we will ask them to provide input on to make sure that our thinking is correct. Did we miss something? And so help us craft a better product. Or, yeah, if maybe we got this wrong, like, hey, you need to change the rules because this is really going to impact these people uh, and you guys missed that. So we'll run these by our advisory committee. Um, and then once we go through that process, we put it on a public notice. So once again, to try to get uh, public input on the draft rules and these statements to make sure that they are accurate and that we have uh, thought about everything. A lot of work goes into crafting these statements. So when we put these out there, there's been a lot of time, a lot of reviews, and usually a lot of um, input from interested parties. And so are there, you kind of touched on this before, but are there laws that take effect without needing any rules written? 
there can be laws that get adopted that touch on things that DEQ is involved with that wouldn't require us to do a rulemaking necessarily. But if, if DEQ is the enforcing entity or the one that the entity that's going to oversee this, then we need to do a rulemaking unless we already have rules that exist that give us that authority. So sometimes we already have rules that exist um, and maybe we don't need to change them. But the vast majority of uh, laws that get adopted that tell us to do something is going to require rulemaking um, to implement. You mentioning that just made me curious uh, if someone out there did want to get involved with one of these um, rules advisories committees, uh, how do they do that? How, how do they get involved? It's important that people are engaged if they can be. It can be hard, but you know, once a law or a rule goes into effect, it's harder to undo than if you're there helping craft it as it gets written. So I encourage anyone that is interested in the process or that wants to have their voices heard, you know, to submit comment um, when the comment periods are open, to um, attend the advisory committee meetings. They're all open to the public. So we put those out on notice. You send out gov delivery notices. We post this information to our webpage and to our events calendar. If it comes to serving, um, I mean, they can always submit uh, emails, email uh, the program. is. So if there's a particular area that someone is interested in, you can always reach out to the program. And I know programs can keep internal lists of potentially interested uh, individuals or entities that they could tap for these committees in the future. And then, yeah, I mean, you could, I guess you could always email me, contact me if you have interest, and I can um, forward you on to the correct um, staff members working on that subject. Um, but just stay informed and involved. It can be hard with everything going on in life, all the competing priorities. And they can't change what we propose. We can change, it can change what people are required to do. It can have big, significant effects. So just, yeah, stay involved, stay informed, which, you know, easier said than done once again. But I encourage anyone that is interested to, to do so. I really enjoyed talking to Emil and hearing about how the agency does rulemaking. And an important distinction to add, the Rules Advisory Committee does help guide the agency as it develops rules, but they are not the ultimate decision makers. The agency will take what it learned from the committee to write rules that will meet the intent of the law. Whether they get adopted is up to the Environmental Quality Commission. That's a good point. And now that we have an understanding of the process, let's talk about what this can look like in real time. We spoke with Mike Kortenhoff, who is in charge of the rulemaking process for the new fuel tank seismic stability program that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. This program is in the middle of creating its rules right now. Hi, I'm Mike Kortenhoff. I'm the manager of the fuel tank compliance section at the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. And thanks so much for being with us, Mike. And uh, we're talking about rulemaking this month. And you are in charge of one of the rulemaking processes that's going on right now. Maybe you can kind of cue up the problem that this legislation about fuel tank seismic stability, what it's responding to, what's the issue here? Thanks. We're working on this because Oregon is part of the Cascadia subduction zone. And we're vulnerable to mega earthquakes uh, up to magnitude nine. 
This uh, rulemaking is about preventing spills and the massive damage uh, that will occur at extremely large oil storage and distribution facilities when there's a magnitude 9 earthquake. The last one occurred in the year 1700, and there's a huge range between recurrences. In the case of fuel tank seismic stability, what are the main things from the law that you got handed from the legislature that you're going to need to describe in more detail in the rules? So what was kind of vague in the law, and now you need to kind of get into the weeds here in the rules? Fortunately, the statute we were given, uh, Senate Bill 1567, is very specific about performing the required risk assessments. And that includes providing a specific deadline for the facility owners to complete those assessments. But after the assessments are done, uh, the facilities must prepare risk mitigation plans, uh, including schedules for implementing those measures. Uh, that involves much more challenging engineering and decision making. The schedule and specifics for mitigation plans are a huge topic for this rulemaking. For example, mitigation is expected to minimize risk per the statute. So we're going to need to define that in the rule. What is minimal risk? Also, these facilities are all located on very different kinds of ground and have equipment that is widely different in design and age. Our strategy is to identify guidelines in rule uh, that can be applied to a variety of situations. Finally, we have to address funding. As is common for DEQ rules, these rules have to set fees for DEQ um, to be paid by the facilities to cover the DEQ expenses for plan reviews and for plan implementation monitoring. Now, gosh, with this, Mike, you know, are we talking just about fuel tanks or are we talking about more? Yes, this is about these major oil distribution facilities. Uh, when we look at them, we see great big tanks, but there is a whole lot of infrastructure associated with them. The piping, the control houses, the wharves, and this is involves all of it. Uh, the term that we've used over the years is critical energy infrastructure, CEI. And so the facilities are going to be assessing more than just the tanks. That's the easy thing to look at and see, oh, that's a problem. But it's all the other above ground and underground uh, infrastructure associated with the tanks that are vulnerable to spill, just like the tanks. Gosh, no, just thank you so much for taking us through that, Mike. And I, I'm just wondering, are there differences in the process because this is an entirely new program? Yes. Um, because it's a brand new program, we don't have any rules to start from. Many rule projects involve modifications to existing rules, so there is a clear starting point. We have to start from scratch which includes writing the basic definitions for every word that might be subject to interpretation when we get into implementing. Also, this is about earthquake preparedness, which is totally new for DEQ. Because of that, we're looking at similar programs at DEQ uh, that we can use as models um, for our rule structure. We're also consulting with other state agencies like the Department of Energy and the Department of Geology and Mineral Industries for support. On top of that, um, we know we need to do extensive research um, 
to support this new work. So we're doing contracting with private consulting engineers and we've contracted with Portland State University to research similar work in other states and even in other countries. Um, that includes involving Yume Wong, the geotechnical engineer that did most of the work to define this problem here in Oregon. This work involves precedent setting engineering for Oregon and for the world, and we have to do it thoroughly and we know we have to do it right. Yeah, it's it's definitely really important. And I know a lot of people um, all over Oregon, since these fuel tanks are in a variety of locations, are really interested in the topic. And one of the things we talked to Emil about was rulemaking advisory committees. And um, you have one in this process with a broad range of interests represented. Um, so who all is represented on your rules advisory committee? And um, what were you thinking about when you composed that group? Yeah, the advisory committee is uh, composed of all the key groups that uh, are impacted by the rules is the idea. The, that includes, in this case, the facility owners, uh, uh, and it also includes those that need to be protected when the earthquake occurs. Uh, we have 13 advisory committee members because of that scope. Three of them are actual facility owner representatives. Uh, we also have residents from each of the three areas in the state where these first facilities we're looking at are located, literally neighbors, neighborhood association. Uh, type representatives. Because there's also extensive city and county involvement with this work, we also have local government representatives involved with backgrounds in engineering, in emergency planning, and in emergency response. Finally, uh, we have ecological and environmental justice advocates uh, on the committee to represent the important equity issues that are involved. What have you heard from them so far? Well, mainly we've heard that we're doing a lot of work on an incredibly ambitious schedule. It's a big project. It's an important project. Um, but uh, DEQ and the committee um, both have dug in to the work uh, because we know um, how big the risk is and we know how complicated the facility work will be when it gets to it. Uh, we've already held two of four planned advisory committee meetings. We've covered the basic requirements of the rule and we've fielded preliminary questions from the committee members so that we all have kind of a common point of reference. We have gotten to the point of reviewing a draft outline of the rule with the committee uh, to give folks a look at what might be included and so they, they can have a chance to identify things that we might have not been thinking about. Uh, so far, largely, we've heard questions about expectations of the rules of the law and the content, and we're using those questions to help us guide the rule drafting work that we're in the middle of right now. So um, we know this bill talks a lot about preventing spills from the fuel tanks, but people in the realm of the response to this type of earthquake think a lot about making sure there's also enough fuel to do the response, since um, one of the areas uh, we're talking about is the critical energy infrastructure hub. So is part of this work to also make sure that there's that fuel available for the response? Yes, this enabling legislation, Senate Bill 1567, directs DEQ to do the work I've been talking about. It also directs the Oregon Department of Energy to prepare um, what's called an energy security plan. 
uh, and it is they're working on the scope of that, but it is intended to make plans for fuel availability in the event of an earthquake. Of course, we hope that if the tanks can be retrofitted or uh, otherwise stabilized so they don't fail, then that fuel will still be available after an earthquake. So we both avoided a spill, a major spill as well as made fuel available. Great. And so um, this is a big process and folks can find out and we'll link to this in the show notes about how to get more information about all of your meetings and everything. We know there are two meetings left. So what's next in your rulemaking work? What are you what are you working on next? Yeah, the, we, the, the first two meetings were kind of the easy part. The second two meetings are where it gets down to the details. So uh, we have promised to deliver a full draft of rule language to the third committee meeting for the committee review and comment. We expect that to take an entire meeting and probably more in follow-up. After working through that, uh, we plan a final committee meeting to review uh, formally the revisions that we've crafted. Uh, Our advisory committees are also expected to comment on the fiscal impact of proposed rules. That is how much and what are the broad costs uh, to the community to implement them. We're also expected to comment on racial equity. That is the impacts that may be borne by some racial groups more than others. When the advisory committee process is complete, DEQ will then issue a formal public notice with actual proposed rule language, and we hold a public hearing so anyone can learn about and comment on the program before it's finalized. After reviewing and responding to comments we received from the public notice and public comments, uh, DEQ presents a final rule proposal to the Oregon Environmental Quality Commission Uh, They're the appointed body with the authority to actually approve our rules. What is the timeline for folks who might be interested, might want to submit comments, um, and then the timeline for when you're actually thinking these rules might be adopted by the Environmental Quality Commission? Yeah, the schedule, the, the next advisory committee meeting is on Friday, March 3rd. The fourth one is scheduled for Friday, April 21st. Uh, We plan to put on public notice the rules by the end of May, and uh, we anticipate June being the public comment period and and holding public hearings in June. Finally, if that all stays on schedule, we'll be presenting this to the Environmental Quality Commission in their September meeting. such an interesting process, and I've been lucky to get to be involved in it. I can tell you that rulemaking is a lot of work for the DEQ staff, for our consultants, and for the committee members who are all coming up to speed on research and bringing their perspectives to the table. That sounds super interesting, Lauren. And I have to say that compared to before, when we knew nothing about rulemaking, it's not as complicated as it seemed. And I mean... Writing the actual rules is probably complicated, but the process itself is fairly simple, just time-consuming. So as you start seeing more news stories about legislative session and what bills look like that they might pass, it's important to keep rulemaking in mind. It's those rules that change what you see in your everyday life. And if you're inspired to be a part of the process, don't forget about the possibility of joining rulemaking advisory committees. Absolutely. And we hope that after hearing this, you'll want to follow up on the rulemaking process after bills are passed. 
We'll make sure to put a lot of information in the show notes, including links to DEQ's rulemaking webpage, Emil's contact information in case you have questions about being on a rulemaking advisory committee, the fuel tank seismic stability rulemaking page, and other things we referenced throughout that I'm sure I'm forgetting right now. Yes, and as ML said, we really do listen to all the folks who participate in the process, and it can change what the rules are in Oregon. And one more note for our listeners about the voices you'll be hearing on future episodes of the podcast. Lauren, do you want to update everyone? Yeah, no problem. So I am taking some time to do a rotation in another position at DEQ that is not on the communications team to get some experience with other programs, and I'll be out until August. And while I'm gone, you'll get the benefit of hearing from some other people on the DEQ communications team. We're happy for you, Lauren, but we'll miss you, and we're looking forward to creating the next great episodes of Green State. Yeah, and we'll catch you next time on Green State. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state@oregon.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com slash greenstate.